0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome, everybody, to episode 38 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matchett, Clinical Education Manager with the county. Uh, joining me today is a usual list of suspects. Uh, going down my list, I have Chief Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. And I see Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Growley. Dr. Growley, welcome. Hey. Uh, EMS Fellow uh Elijah Dalstrom, Doctor Elijah Dalstrom, welcome, Doctor Dalstrom.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: And unfortunately, Dan couldn't be with us today. But before we jump into our continuing discussion on STEMI care and this month moving into what's going on at the hospital, just a wanted to send out a kudos to all our providers out there for we've seen a, a market increase in compliance with the. Uh, Acuvant study. And this is just the friendly reminder, uh, when appropriate, switching over your ventilations from 30 to 2 to continuous. Uh, that being said, uh, I will toss it over to Dr. Weston from a message from Medical Direction.
2: All right. Thank you, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining this month's episode of Push Dose EMS. So last month, we talked about details and impact of pre-hospital STEMI notification. Uh, Now, this month, we take the next step. So what actually happens to a patient once they reach a hospital, whether it's a STEMI patient or just your run-of-the-mill chest pain patient? Uh, Now, this will reinforce what I said last month, the one sentence that I never want to hear a provider in our system say, which is, quote, your ECG looks good, so this is not your heart. Never, never, never. Uh, And there is a lot more that goes into determining whether someone is having heart-related chest pain. And whether they're safe to stay home, or in the case of the hospital, send home, then just that ECG, and we'll learn about that today. So stay tuned to learn those details, as well as much more, and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff.
0: Thank you, Dr. Weston. And I suppose without further ado, uh, over to Dr. Grawe and Dr. Dahlstrom uh, to dive us into that exact topic area. Docs, take it away.
1: Hey, thanks. So just again, I am Dr. Eli Dahlstrom. I am the EMS fellow this year. I'm here with uh, Dr. Tom Graue, one of your associate medical directors of OEM. And we are going to be talking to you today about uh, post-EMS chest pain care, the workup of STEMI in the emergency department, and then some of the common complications that we see in these patients who have experienced a STEMI.
3: Great. So, you know, let's get let's get started off by just talking a little bit about what happens when someone comes into the emergency department with chest pain. You know, and I think that Dr. Wesson had a good point about EKGs, you know, not telling you that the heart is okay. And I'll take that one step further and say that, you know, a lot of times there are there are these like big life threatening causes of chest pain that are not heart related at all that, you know, might not show up on on an EKG. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have with this in EMS and and in the emergency department as well, you know, especially when it's four in the morning and you're tired, uh, you're busy, you've been running calls or in the ER when we're planning what workup to do, you know, we have got 20 people in the waiting room. It's that sometimes people who look good and pass that like sniff test of looking not sick, it's easy to say they don't have anything serious going on. But I'll tell you, like, some of these diagnoses, like aortic dissection, PE in particular, those two, and even a lot of myocardial infarctions, uh, these patients look good. Um, And it's not until you get some tests back or notice a subtle tachycardia that you find that there's something more ominous going on. So, you know, like, when I'm looking at somebody with chest pain in the emergency department, Um, I'm always thinking about my differential diagnosis and what could be going on with them, you know, as I pull up the chart and see how old they are before I even walk into the room, you know, similar to how you're coming up with your differential before you get on scene. When you're thinking about what could be causing chest pain in somebody who's an 80-year-old male versus a four-year-old female, you know, your differential is going to be a little different. And it's good to walk into any call with the differential, you know, kind of lined up. So similar to when I walk into the room. And then you use that history and physical exam to really narrow down that differential for what could be going on. You know, does this sound like a STEMI? Does this sound like a dissection? Does this sound like a PE? You know, other things I'd be worried about, uh, tamponade, esophageal rupture, pneumothorax, pericarditis, those are the big, the big chest pain diagnoses that I'd be worried about that I don't wanna miss. And you ask questions and you use your physical exam to find that. You know, if I've got a patient who's got uh unilateral leg swelling that's tender and she's on birth control and just got off a plane from Hawaii, you know, and now has chest pain, I'm really worried about a PE if I've got a long-term smoker who's got high blood pressure and is having chest pain that's kind of radiating to his back and, and his blood pressures are through the roof, you know, that's when aortic dissection is, is really jumping to the forefront of my list. And then through that kind of formation of that differential diagnosis and what's going on, I'm going to get a couple different tests in the emergency department to help me out. So I'm going to get a 12 lead and that's going to happen right away. Just like an EMS, you know, you walk into triage, you get a 12 lead. The first thing they do when they put you on the bed, moving you from the ambulance cot is get a 12 lead, you know, to see if if there's something very quick uh, regarding a STEMI that we could easily find and, and start down that treatment path for. Okay, beyond that, the other big things that an emergency department's going to get for chest pain are going to be a chest x-ray. That gives you a lot of information about things like a pneumothorax. If people are having an aortic dissection, you can sometimes see some findings from that dissection on the chest x-ray. You'll also see things like a pneumonia. If somebody has a ton of fluid around the heart, sometimes their heart will look enlarged. Broken ribs can show up, um, and then if somebody has that esophageal rupture where they have a hole in their esophagus, you can sometimes see some error where it shouldn't be on the, uh, on the chest x-ray. So a lot of information uh, comes from that. And if you want some more info on these alternative diagnoses that we look for, um, I'll point out the newsletter that has a lot of information on other life-threatening causes of chest pain um, that you can check out. So besides the 12 lead and the, and the chest x-ray, you know, getting a uh, troponin test to look for damage to the heart and then some other screening labs like a CBC that looks for uh, anemia would be the big one that I'm worried about. And then a basic chemistry panel that'll tell me about the electrolytes in someone's body as well as their kidney function are, are kind of the mainstays of treatment. Sometimes if your potassium is really high, that can uh, put you into weird dysrhythmia, same with low potassium. So that's kind of the main electrolyte I'm looking at in this, in this setting. So th- those are the tests that I'll start with. And then beyond that, maybe if I'm worried about a PE or a dissection, I get a CAT scan, you know, or a bedside ultrasound to look at how the heart's beating and whether there's fluid around the heart and someone who might have tamponade or pericarditis, um, but th- those are the mainstay workups are a chest x-ray, a 12 lead, um, and then some uh, some blood work. Beyond this, while all this is going on, it's really important to remember to treat pain, okay? There's this big myth in medicine, you know, that if we treat pain, then it's going to impact how we are able to diagnose That's not the case at all. Whether you treat pain or don't treat pain, um, we're going to be able to figure out what's going on with the patient. It's not going to make it easier. So, you know, you do have some things in the pre-hospital setting that we also have in the hospital, you know, Tylenol, Toradol, those are great things to use for pain that might be musculoskeletal related. If somebody, I'm worried they're having a cardiac cause or more serious cause, uh, maybe I'll try some fentanyl or other opioids. And then the one thing that I have that isn't carried in the emergency department that I'll use not infrequent would be like a lidocaine patch for muscular pain, or we have these things called the GI cocktail that's basically some lidocaine and antacid that can numb up an esophagus and a stomach and help people that are having GI-related chest pain uh, feel better. So again, that's kind of a, just a brief summary of what happens in the emergency department. Remember, there are a whole bunch of things that could cause chest pain behind besides a STEMI. The newsletter is a great resource for some uh, things to think about with all these different diagnoses that might help you uh, find one over the other. And the 12 lead doesn't look for all of them and could even miss the heart ones that you're looking for. So it's very hard to say that a chest pain isn't serious uh, unless you're getting you know a little bit more thorough of an evaluation.
1: So Tom, we're working in the ER, let's say either EMS sends us in a 12 lead or we get a 12 lead in the waiting room and we see ST elevation, we we have findings that demonstrate STEMI, what happens next in the ER?
3: Yeah, so the first thing I'm going to do is activate the cath lab to try to get all the moving pieces together for that procedure. That means maybe clearing a table of somebody who might be getting ready to undergo a non-emergent cath, getting people to come into the hospital. There's a big team that comes with that. If the patient hasn't gotten aspirin already because they're like in the waiting room, you know, EMS, you guys are always giving people aspirin, which is great. Then I'll give them aspirin. And then I'll start some additional blood thinning medicines. So usually heparin, which is an actual blood thinning agent, similar to Coumadin or Warfarin that you might see people taking orally. And then depending on the cardiologist and what the EKG looks like, Sometimes we'll give an additional antiplatelet agent like Berlenta. Um, the old one that we used to give a lot was called Plavix, if you've heard of that. There's a little more that goes into whether people get Berlenta or not. It kind of depends on the cardiologist's preference and kind of the facility-specific preference of the CT surgeons and the cardiologist on whether they do that medication up front or they wait until they get the, uh, get the cath results. But yeah, I'm usually starting heparin, um, getting the cardiology to the bedside and getting everything ready to go. So ideally, after all that, the patient gets picking up, you know, taken to the cath lab, gets, gets their STEMI managed. And now we're going to transition a little bit to talk about some of the long-term effects of STEMI. So Eli, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what goes on in the heart after a STEMI that could lead to some of the long-term side effects that people who have had a heart attack might experience?
1: Yeah, so really, there's a few major things that the the heart's going through. You know, after after you have this ischemic injury to the heart, you end up with some damage to the myocardium, and depending on the location of the STEMI, you may also have damage to the electrical system within the heart. And this really it takes a wide variety of manifestations. Um, the patient could really not have much that you see, you know, they could have some very significant heart damage. And we'll we'll talk about that a bit.
3: Yeah. So what kind of like long term effects? So you talked about some, you know, some heart damage that can happen and there are different styles of what that looks like. But why don't you tell me a little bit more about like heart failure and how that could come from a STEMI?
1: Yeah. So when you have a STEMI and you have this ischemic damage to the muscle, the myocardium, you're going to see a few things happen. You know, essentially, when you have this damage, the heart muscle starts to become, you know, fibrous and scarred, and it doesn't really work the way it's supposed to. It doesn't squeeze quite as well as it's supposed to. When you have that damage, that will eventually start to manifest itself not always but often as some amount of heart failure and heart failure again is really a decreased ejection fraction you know the, the heart is no longer able to pump well enough to supply the body's needs that's that's when it is failing its job Now, more subtly, you will start to see some changes on EKG with some of this damage. Um, With both the depolarization and repolarization of the myocardium, uh, one thing we'll see is Q waves in in certain leads um, can be one of the signs that someone has had a heart attack or a STEMI at some point in the past. Uh, You may see some uh, inversions of T waves as well. Additionally, again, we, we talked about you know congestive heart failure uh, can commonly come from these STEMIs. And these congestive heart failure patients, especially when their ejection fraction starts to get lower, I, I think it's around 25%, they start to consider placement of a implanted cardiac defibrillator, um, specifically because they, they start to have a very increased risk of developing a ventricular arrhythmia and suddenly dying, essentially.
3: Yeah, so from long-term effects from an MI, some people do just fine. Some people end up with heart failure where they because part of their heart has died, they don't have the ability to pump blood as much as before. And then other patients end up with some damage and changes in the electrical system of the heart. So this could be long-term heart blocks that might need a pacemaker. Could be seen as like a Q-wave, T-wave inversions, you know, and some other long-term side effects that you'll see. You know, and unfortunately in EMS, it's hard to know what's old versus new because, you know, you don't have old EKGs to compare to, um, but getting repeat serial EKGs can help give you an idea if some things are sticking around or changing a little bit, even in in the duration of care where you're with the patient. So that's a little bit about, you know, what can happen in kind of the long-term effects of STEMI that people might be dealing with. But let's kind of talk about a unique patient population that I don't think we hit on a lot. So let's say that you're getting called to the house of somebody who's got some complaints and you find out that they recently had a STEMI. So they recently had a STEMI and they're calling 911 and they could be having chest pain, trouble breathing, um, kind of two main complaints that they might have. Let's talk about some different diagnoses that we need to worry about in EMS because we might see these. So Eli, why don't you start us off and uh, well, I'll just outline these and then we'll kind of go through them. So the first would be ventricular free wall rupture, a left ventricular aneurysm, papillary muscle rupture, and then something called Dressler syndrome or uh, pericarditis um, post-MI. So uh, Eli, why don't you talk to us about a uh, ventricular free wall rupture? What is that? Um, what made it look like? You know, what do we need to know about it?
1: Yeah, so... Ventricular free wall rupture is exactly as it sounds. It is rupture of the free wall of the left ventricle. What this is, is, you know, that tissue as it weakens and thins, you know, it it can rupture. And, you know, you have the pericardial sac outside, which will hold blood volume, but you now have catastrophic failure essentially of the heart in its primary function. If you are taking care of a patient who uh, has had a STEMI recently, and they're complaining of chest pain. And then you're seeing signs of cardiac tamponade, you know, uh, the increased jugular venous distension. Um, you might have soft or faint heart sounds. And then this uh, phenomena we call pulsus paradoxus, where you no longer have the uh, physiologic changes of pulse with respiration. These can be signs that you have this ventricular free wall rupture. This typically your big timeframe for worrying about this is anywhere from about five to 14 days after someone has a STEMI. Why should we care about this uh, as far as EMS? You know, th- the big thing is this is an absolute emergency for the patient. This is someone who's at very high risk of death you know, there, there's not going to be a ton that we can do other than get them to the hospital, but there there may be some benefit to giving IV fluids in this patient population as you're transporting.
3: Great. So if I've got a patient that's about within that between one week and two weeks post-STEMI, and they've got this sudden onset of chest pain, some trouble breathing, they could be in heart failure, they've got signs of cardiac tamponade, um, I got to worry about ventricular free wall rupture, and get that patient to the hospital right away. I could try to give some fluids to help them out, but I gotta get them transported to figure out what what could be going on. So what about a left ventricular aneurysm? Tell us a little bit about
1: that. This is commonly seen after your anterior uh, myocardial infarctions. These can sometimes be asymptomatic. Patients won't always have a complaint if they are experiencing the left ventricular aneurysm. It can, however, also present as chest pain and sometimes as shortness of breath. What is a left ventricular aneurysm, really? It's an aneurysm, much like we think of an aneurysm of the aorta or anywhere else. You know, It is this now kind of bulging, thinning of the wall of the ventricle. Of course, this leads to impaired pump function of the heart. And really importantly within the chamber of that left ventricle is now you have changed the fluid dynamics of the blood as it goes through the heart. You have these areas of blood flow that are now kind of stagnating in that area of aneurysm. You know, the blood's no longer flowing smoothly from the mitral valve into the left ventricle and then being pumped out. You have areas of blood that start to pool. And you know, as we know, when blood sits still for a minute, you know, it starts to form clots, right? And, and with these aneurysms, one of the biggest things that we worry about is the predisposition to thrombus formation within the left ventricle. These patients become at much greater risk of having strokes down the road, especially if uh, there is subsequent intervention performed, Now, you're often seeing these left ventricular aneurysms, and and they tend to be a much more chronic pathology. Um, They can last up to six weeks after MI and can be permanent damage to the heart. Why do we care in EMS? This is the sort of thing that you want to just be aware of as a complication of uh, STEMI. Someone who's had a STEMI recently may now be presenting with stroke-like symptoms. You know, you're probably not going to manage this patient a whole lot differently, but this is something that you want to know about and certainly is something if, you know, for those of you who are, you know, really curious, these are really interesting pathologies to look into and to have a better uh, comprehensive understanding of your patients as you're taking care of them um, down the road.
3: Great. So with ventricular free, free wall rupture, you know, we get part of the wall of the ventricle died from the MI becomes weak, and then it bursts open, presents similar to, again, how somebody could have tamponade, like if they gotten stabbed in the heart because you got a hole in the heart. Left ventricular aneurysm, you've got that weakening of the wall from the tissue dying, but this just pouches out and causes a little pocket where you can get clot formation that can cause strokes and other things like that, you know, less likely to see acutely an AMS, but could be a cause for a, a stroke. So we covered two, let's let's hit up a couple more. So what about a papillary uh, muscle rupture? You want to just remind us real quick the audience what a papillary muscle is and kind of tell us a little bit about that pathology.
1: Yeah, thanks Tom. So the papillary muscles, if you recall your anatomy classes, the left ventricle in, in particular, you know, it, it is squeezing with a lot of force. Those valves have this tendency to want to prolapse essentially. They they do not want to stay in place. Through evolution, we've, we've developed these papillary muscles that essentially anchor the valve, the mitral valve specifically, to be in position the way we want it to so that it continues to prevent blood flow back into the pulmonary vascular system. So the, the papillary muscles, especially of the left ventricle, are, are particularly important here, and they are preventing mitral valve uh, regurgitation and prolapse. Some of these papillary muscles notably have singular blood supply and are particularly predisposed to damage if you have certain types of uh, STEMIs, essentially. When you have these stemmies and you take out the only blood supply to this muscle within the, the ventricle, you know, that muscle over time will die and, and can often lead to rupture of the muscle. Which will ultimately manifest as this new mitral valve regurgitation. How these patients are often going to present for you in EMS land is, you know, they may have some chest pain, but very often they're going to have profound shortness of breath. And it may be very sudden onset as they essentially develop this, you know, pulmonary edema from the mitral valve regurgitation that they suddenly have. You want to really be keenly aware of the papillary muscle rupture in about the second day after STEMI through about seven days. Uh, Usually these manifest within that time window. And the biggest thing to keep in mind with these patients is you want to help reduce afterload. And a lot of this is, you know, ER hospital side medicine, but there are things you can consider within EMS. And if you think about you know, severe pulmonary edema and the things that we're trying to do, we're also trying to reduce afterload. We're trying to lower blood pressure a bit. Um, We're kind of doing the same thing here is we want to help promote the forward flow of blood essentially. And that's really our goal with these papillary muscle ruptures.
3: Great. So in a papillary muscle rupture, you get valve failure, and then all the blood that pumps out of these ventricles are going The one where we're most concerned is that we're sending blood back to the lungs when that valve should be closed and preventing that from happening. All right. So let's get into our next diagnosis here. So Dressler syndrome. Tell us a little bit about Dressler syndrome, um, post pericarditis and what we might expect to find there.
1: So Dressler syndrome is an interesting one. There's a lot of theories about it, and there's not quite as much hard evidence on exactly what's going on here. But the hypothesis as it stands is that this is an immune-mediated injury to the myocardium after you have a STEMI, after you have an ischemic event. And this ultimately manifests itself as pericarditis. So, you know, you're going to have these patients who have chest pain that's positional, that that improves when you have them leaning forward. Um, They will often have a pericardial effusion associated with this immune-mediated response they're going to have oftentimes the physical exam and the various findings of a pericarditis. So you will see on EKG, they're going to have diffuse ST elevation. You know, you might hear a friction rub when you listen to their heart. Now, really important to note, if you have someone who's had a STEMI, they just had stents placed, and they're complaining to you of chest pain and you see ST elevation, you absolutely should also be worried about a reocclusion of stents. Certainly uh, you might paint a good picture for Dressler syndrome, but we absolutely wanna be worried about stent reocclusion and you really wanna have a low threshold to activate the cath lab if needed. A couple more points just to talk about Dressler syndrome. We tend to see this in about one to eight weeks after someone experiences a STEMI. This is treated very, very similarly to other pericarditis really with aspirin uh, long-term. And the biggest takeaway I want EMS to have for this is understand that this is something that exists and that this fits a picture. If someone had a STEMI and now they have a pericarditis presentation, this is Dressler syndrome and this is something that we expect. But also I want you to have a low threshold if you see this. If you're getting ST elevation in someone who just had stents placed, really have a low threshold to activate that cath lab to, to call a STEMI alert. It's more important to be safe than sorry in these patients.
3: Yeah. And that's a good point. You know, stents that people get placed can thrombose. So somebody just has an MI, they can have another MI. Most typically when that happens, it's because they're not taking their medications, you know, the antiplatelet medications that they're put on. So that's always a great question. If you're worried about that, like, Hey, have you been taking the, uh, you know, the Plavix, the Berlinta, the aspirin that you're put on after your stent? And if they say no, your suspicions should really go up. So great. Thanks for breaking down those diagnoses for us. So uh, ventricular free wall rupture, left ventricular aneurysm, papillary muscle rupture, and Dressler syndrome or post-MI uh, pericarditis. And then stent thrombosis, I guess we just talked about a little bit, but it's basically just a, an MI after an MI because the stent re One more point I want to make about these diagnoses. You know, if you're worried about a complication from STEMI, With the exception of the Dressler syndrome that we're also just worried about another MI, these patients do not need a STEMI hospital, okay? So if you're having a papillary muscle rupture, left ventricular aneurysm, there's nothing about a cath lab that's going to help you out in those settings, okay? So those are not STEMI, acute STEMI patients, so they do not need a STEMI hospital. So uh, Eli, why don't you uh, take us home today with just giving us a little summary and some take-home points from uh, today's podcast?
1: Yeah, so the first take-home point is when you take the patient to the ER, um, they have a complaint of chest pain, maybe we're worried about STEMI, you know, the ER's process is they are going to evaluate the patient themselves, they're going to, you know, get a good history, get a good physical, they're going to form their own differential diagnosis, and this is going to include cardiac and also non-cardiac concerns, then we're going to get evaluation and treatment on board for these patients. You're commonly going to see serial EKGs. You're going to see serial troponins being drawn. And really the important takeaway we want to have, especially for EMS providers in the field, is one-time screening EKG, one 12-lead, it's not enough to say that the patient's chest pain isn't serious. MIs evolve over time. Sometimes they don't show up on the initial uh, EKGs. And frankly, there's a lot of other things that we are concerned about in the ER when someone comes in with chest pain. The second point would be that you know when a STEMI is found in the ER or by EMS, we have a very prescribed pathway that this patient's going down. You know we're activating the cath lab, we're getting cardiology on board. They're seeing the patient. We have certain medications that we're getting going. And you know every hospital is going to be a little bit different, and it's going to go based on what the cardiologist wants, and be a little bit on a case by case basis. But there is a very formal pathway, generally speaking, that this patient is going down once STEMI has been diagnosed. The third point I would make is that there are predictable types of damage that the heart experiences after a STEMI. Some of the common ones include bundle branch blocks, um, AV node dissociation, and congestive heart failure. So, so when you're seeing these things on your 12 lead. You know, these are often signs that someone has at some point, maybe now and maybe a while ago, had some sort of ischemic injury to the heart. And then the last point I would say is that you should be aware of several of the feared complications that we see in the immediate post-STEMI environment, um, you know, including the ventricular free roll rupture. The ventricular aneurysm, the papillary muscle rupture, and Dressler syndrome. These are well documented and well known phenomena and are things that I I think we make better EMS providers knowing these diagnoses. With that, I would like to thank everyone for listening and stay classy, Milwaukee.
0: Dr. Dahlstrom, Dr. Growley, thank you so much, as always, for your insights and knowledge, taking the time out to give a little feedback to our providers on. An insight into what happens after they drop those patients off in the ed things that you're looking for as ed providers uh, and what the patients can look forward to in their medical process also big thanks to everyone who takes time out to listen to us every month we appreciate it if you do have any feedback questions comments or topics that you'd like covered in future podcasts please as always feel free to reach out ems education at mohawkcountywi.gov thank you all very much Stay safe and we'll see you next month.